Hello, everyone around the world. Welcome to our special event on food loss and waste. Can we end it by 2030 while dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic? We are delighted to co-organize this event together with Champions 12.3, with the Embassy of Denmark in Washington, DC, and with the World Resources Institute, WRI. I'm Rajal Pandya Loach. I'm Director for Communications and Public Affairs at IFPRI. Thank you for joining us at this special event. And thank you for those of you who are going to be watching the recording of this event. We are eager to hear from all of you and to participate in the Q&A session that will follow the brief presentations. Please submit your questions using the chat box on ifpre.org, or you can also post your questions on Facebook, YouTube, and on Twitter by using the hashtag ifpre.live. Let me now hand over to the chair of our event, Troels Mandel Wenseld, Minister Councillor of Food, Agriculture and Fisheries with the Embassy of Denmark in Washington, DC. He will set the stage for this event and introduce our speakers. Troels, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Rajul, and good morning and good afternoon to all of you. I'm very pleased to chair today's event. And I would like to start by thanking uh, all of the speakers today for taking the time to join us in this important conversation and also thanking all of you who have joined us out there on the various platforms and are listening in. We look forward to a very active discussion with you later on. COVID-19 has significantly disrupted the food chain. For instance, we see in some countries crops are being plowed under, milk poured into the drains and pigs are utilized due to rapid changes in demand and changes in consumer behavior. At the same time, we see economic uh, a global economic downturn with dire consequences. People are lining up in queues at food banks and soup kitchens, and we haven't even seen or felt all of the consequences yet. And we are just 10 years apart uh, away uh, from 2030, where the agenda for sustainable development goals are to be met, and eliminating food loss and waste is increasingly urgent. Building on the 2019 inaugural event on food loss and waste, Today's special event will discuss whether, as a global community, we can or will end food loss and waste while dealing with COVID-19 pandemic. In the conversation today, we will hear presentations from different perspectives uh, along the food supply chain. We will begin with two keynote speakers, two policymakers in their respective countries, Minister Jensen from Denmark and Deputy Secretary Sinski from the US. Then we have two speakers with a commercial perspective, Senior Sustainability Manager Anna Karin Modin Edman from Ala Foods, and Senior Director for Corporate Affairs Denise Oesterhus from Kroger. Ambassador Vedder from Edelman will give a holistic perspective, and then we will hear some summing up remarks from Rob Voss from IFPRI and Craig Hansen from World Resource Institute before we go into a Q&A session. I would like to thank our co-organizers, IFRI, Champions 12.3, and the World Resource Institute. Thank you so much for once again making it possible for all of us to home in on these very important issues of reducing food loss and waste. We have a busy schedule before us today, but also in the greater scheme of things. So let's get started. But before handing the floor to the first keynote speaker, Minister Jensen, I would like to welcome our virtual host, Dr. Johan Swinnen, Director General of IFRI to say a few words. 
Johan, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Rolf. Thanks for this kind introduction. Um, this is a very timely event, although the event itself had been postponed because initially uh, the event was scheduled on 12th March, so the 12th day of the third month, referring to SDG target 12.3, 12 12.3 12 uh, about food and waste, uh, uh, reducing food losses and waste. Of course, we had to reschedule this event because of the COVID-19 outbreak. COVID-19, as uh, Jules already said, has major implications for uh, food loss and waste. The impact on the food system actually is quite heterogeneous. Some of our uh, value chains, our food systems have held up quite well and are continuing to function quite effectively. However, many of them have been heavily disrupted with major implications for food loss and waste. We've seen that uh, if one stage of the supply chain of the value chain is, uh, breaks down, basically the links between consumers and producers is broken. And this is resulting in significant food losses. Think, for example, the meat processing sector in the United States. Many, in many countries, transport and retailing have been disrupted and causing all kinds of problems. COVID shows in a rather dramatic way how food systems, how value chains are resilient or not, how they're valued, how they are vulnerable to external shocks, such as, for example, by this uh, virus. We should use this. We should use this crisis to draw lessons over the uh, about how resilient or not resilient our food systems really are. I think it also underlines the importance of the work that we do at IFRI together with other partners on addressing food loss and waste. We have some innovative work going on to basically have improved measurement of food losses. We're not only looking at the quantity of food loss, but also at the quality of food loss. Through the G20 technical platform on food loss and waste, we have worked with FAO to establish a food loss index. And this food loss index is a new way of measuring cost effectively how to reduce food losses and waste for smallholder farmers and for intermediaries. With experts from FAO, from FAO, some of our experts, such as Rob Foss, is co-editing a special issue of food policy on the topic of food loss and waste. All in all, this is important, not just because food loss and waste is important in itself, as it is, but also a means to come to a more resilient and less vulnerable and more sustainable food system. So let me end by thanking the government of Denmark, the World Resources Institute, uh, for co-hosting this, uh, this event. I'm really looking forward to the presentations, both from our experts from government, but also experts from the farm sector, private food business and research. So I look forward to hearing from all of you on how to move the agenda forward. Thank you very much. Thank you, Johan. And now to our first keynote speaker, Minister Jensen. How has COVID hit Denmark and how do you see the perspectives for reaching the goal of reducing food loss and waste by 2030? Minister Jensen, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you very much to the International Food Policy Research Institute for inviting me today to open this webinar on food loss and waste. I was looking forward, of course, to join the event in Washington back in March, so of course I was sorry that it was cancelled because of the current situation. Nevertheless, I'm happy that uh, we, despite the circumstances, uh, had the opportunity now to have this uh, event. Uh, across the world, we, we are now facing an unprecedented crisis with the spread of uh, COVID-19. In these challenging times, it is important with close international cooperation to ensure the food supply chain 
and share information and best practices. The pandemic is putting further pressure on the global food supply chains with restaurants, hotels and schools closed in many places. It leads to challenges for farmers and producers with fewer distribution channels and also a risk of uh, excess food. It's a key priority for the Danish government to help uh, Danish business and industries tackle the COVID-19 situation. However, the current challenge only emphasizes the underlying challenges still facing us, such as food waste. This event was uh, scheduled for the 12th of March, or 12-3, as we say in Denmark. This date, of course, uh, reminds us of the Sustainable Development Goal known as 12.3. You're probably all familiar with the uh, ambitious uh, goal to half the global waste uh, by uh, 2030. Food waste is a major global uh, challenge. So the reasons for setting the UN Development Goal are, uh, of course, very clear. And with the arrival now of COVID-19, the goal is more relevant than ever. We know that one third of all food is lost or wasted easier globally. The cost for the global economy is 940 billion US dollars each year. 8% of the annual global greenhouse emissions are due to food loss and waste. These are hard facts showing the importance of reducing food waste. Denmark welcomes that the UN Secretary General has called for a food systems summit in 2021. The COVID-19 pandemic underlines the importance of good food systems. Food waste and food losses will be a key theme for the food systems summit and Denmark is ready to engage in 2021. In Denmark, we have great ambitions, not only for food waste, but also for the green agenda in general. We have set a goal uh, inscribed in law to reduce Danish greenhouse gas emissions by 70% by 2030, compared to the 1990 level. But in Denmark, a country 228 times smaller than the US, we know that around 4% of the total carbon emissions is due to food loss and food waste. We also know that food loss and uh, food waste occur at all steps of the value chain, from production to consumption, from farm to fork. We have to tackle the food, valid, uh, the food waste challenge, but where do we look for solutions and what do we do? According to the FAO, around 14% of the world's food is lost in production before uh, reaching the retail level. And it might be much more in the current situation. It is especially important to address retail and consumer waste in industrialized countries as uh, the US and, and Denmark. Food donation is one area where more work needs to be done. We know that there are administrative barriers that business faces when donating surplus food. The legislation was made at a different time 
and with different objectives such as food safety in mind. And it's important that all consumers are ensured that their food is safe. However, we need to find now the right balance between food safety and fighting food waste. Together with my administration and the Danish think tank on the prevention of food loss and food waste called One Third, we are now looking at the barriers of food donation. I hope that this soon will result in a clarification of the complex legislation that donors of surplus food must comply with. Another and very important challenge is to raise awareness among consumers about food waste. Therefore, I have recently launched September 29 as the first official national food waste day in Denmark. The date is the same as the UN International Day of Awareness of Food Laws and Waste. The idea is to raise awareness and engage the Danish consumers further in the fight against food waste. The Danish consumers are responsible for one third of the food waste in Denmark. That is almost 250,000 tons per year and out of a total population of less than 6 million inhabitants. In this regard, labeling is a crucial example. Consumers have difficulties understanding the date marking. In Denmark, we have used targeted information campaigns to consumers explaining the expiry dates with success. And many companies have included the note, often good after, on their packages. Finally, we must take initiatives to shift the social norm in our societies. We are already seeing some progress on this in Denmark. Between 2011 and 2017, we have seen a reduction of food waste with 8%. Hopefully, the current crisis and its focus on food security will be a revelation for many of us to start changing behavior and see our food more as an appreciated resource. As I said in my introduction, I have a sincere wish to share information and best practices on food waste of, on a global scale. Only true cooperation can we overcome the current challenges. We only have one decade to meet our goals. We must pick up our speed. Therefore, I hope that you'll have a fruitful discussion. I hope that we will have the chance to meet soon and take stock of our progress. Unfortunately, I have to go offline uh, now, but the good thing uh, about this online platform is that I have the opportunity to listen to your ideas uh, at another time. Thank you very much for, for listening. Thank you very much, Minister Jensen. Very interesting approach with the public-private partnerships and a dedicated think tank to food loss and waste. And thank you so much for taking the time to address us here today. We look forward to cooperate with, with you further. Thank you so much. Thank you. Deputy, Saris, Deputy Secretary Sinski, the agricultural sector and the food supply chain has taken some hard hits here in the US. Almost overnight, the food service sector shut down, changing the demand side completely. As in many other countries, it's combined with an economic economy in a sharp downturn. We have seen USDA has been very active. It must have been some very busy weeks for you and all the good folks at USDA. 
Deputy Secretary, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Trolls. I appreciate that. And thank you, Minister Jensen, as well. I'd like to thank our hosts for initiating this important conversation and make this virtual event here a reality during uh, this uh, unique time that we're going through. Certainly, as we gather here today, the pandemic is at the forefront of our minds, and USDA honors those who have been tragically impacted by the coronavirus and thanks the dedicated individuals that are working day after day on the front lines during this time of uncertainty. Uh, I did want to share today some of the actions USDA has taken to reduce food loss and waste during these times that have hit the agriculture industry especially hard. Certainly we know that shifting markets, specifically the limited number of restaurants and hotels operating has caused consumers to turn toward the grocery stores during this national emergency. And this has led to repercussions along every step of the supply chain. Uh, unfortunately, we have seen food, food loss and waste occurring uh, while the supply chain adapts to the shifting market demands. For many commodities, there were essentially two supply streams. One was for the restaurant and the food service trade, which was taking 50, 60, or even more of their production. And then the other was for the retail or grocery market. With COVID-19, that 50 or 60% stream that was going to the restaurants and food service suddenly stopped. And the supply chain has been working to redirect that stream to retail, but there's been some limitations on how quickly they've been able to do this due to retail versus food service equipment, packaging, logistics, and some of the other challenges. Uh, unfortunately, uh, during this, while they've been working to adapt, some farmers have had to make the difficult decision to plow under their ready to harvest produce, dump fresh milk, and depopulate livestock as meat processing plants were closed while they were making changes to their processing lines to try to protect workers. Uh, these serious problems arose uh, very, very quickly in a matter of days, and, and we've been working very diligently to try to mitigate those, those damages. One of the things that we've done is we've built a Corona food assistance program from the ground up. Our, that program has two major elements. One is some direct support for farmers, $16 billion that we have announced, and then also approximately $3 billion for a USDA purchase and distribution program through an innovative program that utilizes those local and regional food service suppliers that used to be serving the restaurant and the food service trade that are now out of work, but, but to a contract with them to purchase produce and deliver produce, meat, and dairy products, to food banks, and other not-for-profits serving Americans in need. On just this last Friday, we approved an initial $1.2 billion in contracts under that $3 billion program to support producers and communities in needs. And we're calling this our Farmers to Families Food Box Program. And on this initial uh, $1.2 billion contract announcement, we'll be purchasing around $461 million in fruits and vegetables, around $317 million in a variety of dairy products, and then $258 million in meat products, and then $175 million in a combination of produce, meat, and dairy. 
suppliers, uh, these local food service distributors, uh, will will package these products into family-sized boxes and then transport them to food banks, community and faith-based organizations and other not-for-profits that are serving Americans in need for an initial period of May 15th through June 30th. And then we also may elect to extend the performance of those contracts uh, and add others as we uh, go beyond that initial 1.2 billion and build up to the $3 billion that has been announced. Uh, entering into these contracts, we think will really help supplement our food banks that have been serving Americans in need and have fallen on hard times. It, we, speaking of the food banks, we are uh, ramping up and have delivered really a tremendous amount of food to those food banks. Uh, we have continued to purchase uh, under the, uh, the Emergency Food Assistance Program, one of our programs that distributes uh, products to the food banks, as well as uh, section, another program that we have that we call Section 32. We've bolstered both of those programs. Uh, under Section 32, just this last week, we announced another $470 million in food purchases that will be delivered over the next two months uh, to the food banks. And then we also have around $850 million of additional funding for the Emergency Food Assistance Program to deliver uh, aid once again to those food banks. Uh, we also uh, are working through our other nutrition programs that we have. In addition to the food banks, we've increased the purchasing power of households that are participating in our Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, by $2 billion a month, which is a 40% increase. And so that Americans who are out of work and are on the SNAP program can go to their grocery stores and purchase. We've also uh, greatly expanded the number of, uh, of online purchasing that can be done by those who are participating in the SNAP program and have been approving a number of additional states to participate in a pilot program that allows SNAP households to purchase online. And right now we have over half of our SNAP participants that are able to purchase online as well as go to the grocery store. And then for our school children, we've also been, with the schools closed, we've been making sure that they've been fed by allowing uh, states to serve free meals, not only to the low-income uh, children, but all children at all of our 45,000 feeding sites that have been set up nationwide, uh, and then to provide meals to rural school children who where it's difficult for them to come to the feeding site. We've also thought outside the box and we've uh, developed a Meals to You program with Baylor University, McLean Global, PepsiCo, that is delivering over 5 million meals per week to the front door delivered uh, via the postal service uh, or other means to the children in rural areas that have been affected by the school closures. I wanted to say in talking about food waste and wanted to highlight that we have announced just recently back in February, our agriculture innovation agenda. Uh, Secretary Purdue un unveiled this and it's a department wide effort to better align our resources and our programs and our research to try to help farmers uh, deal with the, with the challenges that we face. Under the Ag Innovation Agenda, we aim to increase U.S. agriculture productivity by 40% by 
while cutting the environmental footprint in half. Uh, we have specific goals on water quality, carbon sequestration, renewable energy, and of course, food loss and waste, which we think is very important. On the part of our winning, uh, we have participating in the winning on reducing food waste initiative. Uh, we have partnered with the Environmental Protection Agency, the Food and Drug Administration, um, to announce the winning on reducing food waste initiative. And through this initiative, our agencies are coordinating action to try to leverage our government resources to reduce food waste, educate Americans on the importance, and, and uh, look to see what can we do to help make sure that, that we are doing our part. An important part of that is also food loss and waste champions and a number of private sector companies who are committing to reduce and cut in half their, their, their food loss and waste by 50% by 2030. In conclusion, I want to thank you for the time today. Thank you for organizing this important event. We at USDA look forward to working together to continue to reduce food loss and waste in our future. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Deputy Secretary. And thank you for some very interesting uh, comments and uh, very interesting perspectives, including the emphasis on innovation. Uh, I think we're all looking very much forward to see all, how all this unfolds. And thank you very much for taking the time to address us today. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And this is when I will remind you out there in the audience to submit questions via Facebook, ifpre.org, and YouTube and also to join the conversation on the social media platforms using the hashtag IfPreLive. And now we turn to the commercial perspectives. Anna Karin, how has a farmer-owned global dairy company felt and dealt with the COVID? What perspectives do you see for your efforts on sustainability, both close to home, but also at abroad? Anna Karin, the floor is yours. Thank you. And uh, again, thank you to the org for organizing this important event. Uh, Olive Foods is an international dairy cooperative. We're owned by some 9,700 dairy farmers in Northwestern Europe. Um, and we have global outreach in sales. And just to remind everyone that Arla is a dedicated friend of Champions 12.3 and we're very committed to reducing food waste. And I'll come back to that. Um, we have set uh, targets, of course, to have our own production of food waste by 2030. And we have already achieved a 27% reduction since 2015, which is our base year. And we measure it according to the Food Loss and Waste Accounting and Reporting Standard and ACT, both, in, both internally to drive change further and of course by engaging as well in initiatives like the Quartal Commitment in the UK, Denmark Against Food Waste, as Minister Jensen mentioned, and similar initiatives in Sweden and Germany, etc. Um, just to, to comment on, on how we have been hit by COVID-19, of course we've been heavily hit, not least the huge change that the lockdowns have had on the food service sectors across markets around the world, uh, rapidly reducing orders for fresh dairy products from large restaurants customers, but also reduced sales through open markets and small outlets uh, in growth markets in, for example, Sub-Saharan Africa and in Asia. Um, in Arla, we've managed to maintain and increase the supply to our retail customers, uh, especially on core markets. And through dedicated partners, we've also managed to maintain last mile distribution of affordable milk powder nutrition 
by a project where female micro entrepreneurs in rural Bangladesh distribute our products. And it's just important to stress in these times that it's crucial to maintain uh, global food supply chains because food security is uh, really under threat in many regions. Uh, of course, it's equally important to maintain local food production systems. And so far, we have managed to collect the milk from our owners, as usual, as well as in markets where we source locally produced milk, like Nigeria, for example, where we process milk from, from local farmers in the northern part of the country. So that means that so far, we believe that there hasn't been any significant increase in milk loss at farm level in our milk supply chain but we anticipate uh, food waste in production to increase uh, because of the large and extremely fast changes in demand uh, and despite huge efforts from our supply chain to process our owner's milk into for example milk powder instead of fresh dairy products we know that the waste increase especially in the beginning of the situation uh, was quite substantial but of course we have um, increased donations um, because we know as also mentioned that fellow citizens in, in need is, is of course increasing as well um, we will of course review strategies how to optimize our production mix going forward to handle the situation and there are three learnings from this crisis that I hope that we will benefit from going forward that can hopefully also benefit food waste reductions. And that is one that we know that we can change fast in times of crisis because we have done faster and more agile decision making in Arla and we've really had this uh, spirit of pulling together. So this, this rapid change is really a good learning also to see that we have managed to reduce complexity in our dairies significantly to enable our dairies to work more efficiently and that in turn is very important when we um, aim to reduce uh, food loss and waste going forward because we know complexity drives food waste and third uh, it's just been so evident in this crisis how intertwined and equally important global food supply chains and local food production systems are and that they're both key to all our success uh, but also that we all depend on farmers and well-functioning trade and that we should really protect both going forward so thank you thank you very much and i kind that was some uh, interesting learnings there Denise, you were part of our conversation last year. How has Kroger progressed with the food loss and waste in the last year? And how has COVID changed the game for Kroger? Denise, the floor is yours. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much. I'm um, happy to share an update with you today. So I lead sustainability and community engagement at Kroger. And really what that means is, is our team um, is focused on a variety of, of material ESG topics, but we also lead our Zero Hunger, Zero Waste Social Impact Plan, which is about creating communities free of hunger and waste. So if you go to the first slide, I just wanna confirm, you know, at this challenging time, Kroger is truly here for everyone. So what we decided very early on um, as the coronavirus was, was spreading was that our most important mission for our communities was to keep our stores open, clean, and stocked so everyone could access fresh, affordable food. So in order to do that, you know, we took extra steps and we continue to work very quickly and make decisions quickly to protect the health and safety of our associates and customers. So I would also like to thank everyone working on the front lines everywhere, including our dedicated associates. 
Um, I do want to share th three things with you today. One is a little bit about what's happening today, uh, how Kroger is focusing our attention, and then, and then a little bit of a look forward. So if you go to the next slide, what we see happening in our communities today is exactly what you've already heard, so I won't repeat it, but essentially we see greater food insecurity, greater hunger, and uh, additionally, more food waste potentially. Um, and this really to Kroger confirms that our zero hunger, zero waste mission is more relevant than ever today. We've made significant progress since we first introduced our plan in late 2017. Here you can see a peak of our top line goals and our 2019 progress to date. So we've had two full years of work in our zero hunger, zero waste plan. Um, a lot of our goals uh, are focused on feeding people. So we actually want to see more food going to the people in our communities who need it. And then we also want to reduce, and we've been uh, able to reduce the food waste we generate in our retail operations, as well as the food that we are diverting from landfill. So we're happy with our progress so far. But the landscape is rapidly changing and we know 2020 already looks much different. And we wanna pull forward some longer term projects uh, that we started before and accelerate the support that's needed urgently today. If you go to the next slide. Um, so in the US, as we've talked about, 30 million people filing for unemployment and food assistance with schools closed. You know, we are also trying to help figure out how to uh, maintain access to feeding programs that often help students and families on the weekends and summer as well. Uh, many volunteers at our food bank partners, um, because we are a founding member of Feeding America in the US and work with about 100 of their uh, local affiliates and other agencies and pantries. A lot of their volunteers were among the at-risk population and needed to stay home. So food banks have adopted drive-through models, which is fantastic, and they're distributing a lot of shelf-stable boxes of food. At the same time, uh, people who can shop are ordering online and shopping in our stores and still stocking up. And so that, that has put pressure on our teams and our suppliers to keep our shelves full. Uh, we are in another stocking up phase right now. And so one of our messages has been also to our customers to shop responsibly, to buy what you need, but don't buy a lot more than you need. Um, and to reassure them there is ample food in our food system and supply chain. So the absurdity is really uh, remaining and what Zero Hunger, Zero Waste is all about, which is there is a food surplus. But, uh, but as we've heard, many farmers and producers may no longer have a market if they were producing for food service or for entertainment venues, hospitality, et cetera. Retail has absorbed some of that excess, but we can't absorb all of it. And so we have seen some stories of food going to waste. Um, so stay on this one for a minute. So I would say our focus is always um, on providing food and funds to help our communities. We are well-versed in disaster relief and pivoting very quickly in our supply chain to meet the local needs as they accelerate. What is unique about this situation with COVID-19 is that it's happening everywhere all at the same time. So it's harder for us to divert product from one part of the country to serve another because it's happening everywhere. So first I'll talk about funds. So we quickly um, created an emergency COVID-19 response fund within our Zero Hunger, Zero Waste Foundation. And so far we've given about $7 million 
in grants to national and local partners to help them with immediate needs related to COVID-19. We continue um, to steward funds because we also turned on um, fundraising from our customers in stores and online to give customers an easy way to help because we have very generous customers in our communities and many of them often are the same people who are looking to the food bank partners for help, but they continue to be generous with their own resources. And then food. So food is the big thing. And we continue to focus on retail food rescue um, because any food surplus that we have, we want to make sure goes to feed people. So all year long, we rescue fresh food and direct it to food bank partners. We continue to do that even as retail rescue has been disrupted. Uh, during COVID-19. We do feel like it is stabilizing in some markets, but we continue to try to rescue as much as we can. We do know in, in many markets and even here in Cincinnati, it is down considerably uh, because we are selling so much and, and we're struggling to keep our um, shelves stocked at any given moment, depending on, on the day or time. Um, in Cincinnati, our culinary development team of chefs who usually create new products and new recipes are using our test kitchen to transform rescued food into healthy soups that then go to our local school district for families. Um, our team at 8451, which manages all of our customer insights and loyalty information, they worked with the city of Cincinnati to create a map of locations where residents can find the closest meal to them. And we continue to develop additional ways that we can feed more people using both of those models. We also expanded our dairy rescue program, which was a pilot we started last year in Michigan. It's a multi-stakeholder partnership to rescue surplus raw milk. And um, during the pandemic now, we're scaling this pilot up very quickly in other states, uh, Ohio, Kentucky, and um, I think Indiana, obviously Michigan. And this is a pilot, or it's an expanded program where dairy cooperatives donate surplus milk normally sold to restaurants, schools, hotels, et cetera. And then Kroger will donate the processing at one of our 17 dairy uh, processing facilities around the country and package the donated milk as well. And then some of our local partners will help transport the gallons to local agencies and pantries who need it throughout the summer. Uh, we estimate that this will direct about 200,000 gallons of milk to families this summer, which is, you know, maybe not, the, uh, um, it's a big number for us, but we recognize there is even more potentially that could be rescued. So we continue to work with our national and local partners to think about how to do that. And then if you go to the next slide, um, I agree with our uh, speakers before that this pandemic gives us a unique opportunity to step forward and lead and drive change more quickly to build a more resilient food system for the future. So Kroger has doubled down on our commitment to zero hunger, zero waste. And we look at it potentially as an opportunity to drive the national and local conversation and to um, enable more public-private partnerships to drive that innovation. So despite, and perhaps because of what's happening around us and globally, we think it's more important than ever to achieve our uh, Global Goal 12 and Target 12.3 to reduce food waste. We are partners in WRI's 10 by 20 by 30 initiative, and we recently invited our 20 suppliers across all food categories to join the Target Measure Act approach and cut food waste in half by 2030. We feel like it is still important to do that. We have 10 years. 
We, um, we told our suppliers that we were inviting them because it still remains important, just like a, a, a lot of our other ESG material topics. Kroger continues to still keep those moving because we want to make sure that the work we do now still creates a more sustainable future. Um, our supplier responses are still coming in. However, all of them who have responded so far have said yes, which I think is tremendous. The goal may, may seem daunting today, given what's going on, but the need is clear and we want to continue driving the work. So that said, partnerships and innovation continue to be on our list of priorities. And we believe we can truly create a better future for everyone if we work together. Um, we, if you'd like to see more about what Kroger is doing, because we have shared what we've learned and resources for other businesses as we try to reopen the economy, we've shared that on the KrogerCo.com. It's our blueprint for business. So there's a lot more there about what Kroger has done to keep our business up and running for our customers and our communities. Uh, my contact information is there as well if you'd like to reach out. Uh, so we look forward to talking more about what's possible together. Thank you. Thank you very much, Denise. It was very inspiring and very good to hear some concrete uh, initiatives that you're taking out there. It's very interesting. Darcy, you have experience from government and are now advising companies and others through your position at Edelman. What do you tell them to do or be aware of right now? And what are your perspectives on this very unfortunate situation? Darcy, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Charles. Uh, and thank you for the opportunity to be here. Um, going at, at the end of the pack, <laughs> maybe I'll take a moment to summarize a little bit some of the structural problems that we've seen as a result of COVID-19 in the food system. And then talk a little bit, um, we've talked a lot about those problems, what individual companies are doing, um, but maybe also think about some structural things uh, to keep in mind to try to prevent um, loss and waste in the future. Um, you know, I think food loss and waste obviously was a challenge pre-COVID. We're seeing that really magnified as we try to tackle this. Uh, and then the question is, what can we learn from this magnified situation going forward to apply to continue to head toward uh, 12, uh, the goal of 12.3 um, and reducing food loss and waste? Um, but what we've really seen is a bit of fragility in our global supply chains for, um, for food out of COVID-19. And I think they really can be categorized in four ways. Um, one is the severe disruption of transportation networks and how critical that has been. Um, transport of fruits and vegetables, particularly those perishable products that can't be stored has been severely disrupted. Um, one of every five calories consumed crosses a border before consumption. So while uh, we may be focusing a bit on the U.S. market here today, pretty much everyone eats globally at this point, and it does affect um, diets around the world. So if you consider uh, just one example, that airline traffic has been reduced by 80% uh, by this crisis, and that while we think about the inability to move people, the cargo hold of all, holds of all those passenger flights are often filled with strawberries or other fruits and vegetables that we count on being able to be delivered quickly. Those markets have evaporated for farmers of those products um, when they can't transport them. We've seen similar delays um, and stickiness in uh, cargo traffic by um, 
by land through trucks and by sea as well. Many of our speakers have referred to the instant evaporation of food service markets. Um, restaurants, universities, hotels all closed. Uh, and a key challenge here is that immediate loss of market, but also the uncertainty about how long that closure will persist. And, you know, uh, Deputy Secretary Sensky referred to the specialized equipment um, and packaging and different transport networks that are required to move food going to a retail market versus larger commercial users. But the investment in that equipment, the installation of it, the changes in labor patterns take significant periods of time and money to implement. And if this is a temporary problem, the question really is how much should those um, adjustments be made? Um, so again, essentially those two supply chains um, have been merged to one, but perhaps not permanently. We also have a crisis of labor. And I think it's important to, um, that this has really put to the fore the importance of those jobs in our agricultural supply chain, whether that's at the picking stage, those migrant laborers who harvest so many of our crops. Um, we've seen restrictions on their migration. We saw reports just earlier this week of private jets flying Eastern European farm laborers into Britain uh, to, to harvest crops. Um, Visa restrictions, movement uh, restrictions from COVID have stopped that, but also once those pickers are in place, um, how in fact those laborers are um, housed, uh, how closely they have to work together. We are also seeing more reports of uh, disease outbreaks among uh, workers in agricultural fields. And then of course comes the processing bottleneck that we are seeing in our meat packing plants where you have individuals who have to work closely together and there are health implications of that. That I think has driven something that is a particular concern um, in that there's the loss of markets for farmers. You've seen um, hog farmers having to euthanize their animals and lower prices on the production end, but higher prices and lack of uh, consistent supply for consumers as well, many of whom can um, least afford it. And of course, last but not least is the massive loss of income. With 30 million in the U.S. alone unemployed, the ability, of course, to afford consistent supplies of food are particularly important. Um, direct food assistance is going to be critical. We've heard our speakers talk about putting, um, diverting some product into those uh, donation supply chains but also putting money in the hands of people so they can purchase it and spur the rest of that supply chain in a more normal way. And Deputy Secretary Sinski touched on the importance of SNAP benefits and extending them in doing that. But when we think about COVID through the lens of waste, I did want to um, put a little bit of a hopeful spin on the end because we talk more about the problems. Um, you know, really in the US, the conversation has largely been about waste. Um, post-consumer waste. We've now had a bit more emphasis and a focus on food loss and what we can really do to prevent waste before it gets to um, consumer plates. And one of the, the, the issues here, of course, is preservation of those perishable products. And I think um, both because they stretch incomes, but also preserve uh, products, more discussion about frozen foods and processing closer to that supply chain, um, how it can prevent uh, spoilage uh, for farmers and at that level, 
but also for consumers who can use what they need uh, as they go. And that's both an inexpensive and a nutritious option. A nutritious option. Um, the importance of international markets, and Anna Corinne really focused on this. Unfortunately, when you see a shortage of supplies on shelves um, or a surplus at the farm level, some of the first calls you get are to either stop exports of products that consumers need or prevent imports uh, if there's a feeling of too much competition. But I think Anna Corinne reminded us that exports and imports are often key ways of preventing waste particularly in our protein markets in the United States, where um, we may have the opportunity, for example, to export whole carcasses or have carcasses of hogs that don't require much processing, can help to move hogs through the system so they are not wasted, for example. It's also important that international consumers are often the ones that eat, um, eat offal, organs, uh, intestines, pig's feet, a delicacy in China, but something that might go to waste were it to stay in the United States. And so the importance of those markets is key. And last but not least, I think I'm a lot more in touch being home for 10 weeks with the contents of my own refrigerator. I have a better sense of the portions that my family eats, of how we use that food, um, instead of having them shoved to the back of the fridge, we're fighting over last night's leftovers for lunch. And I think a better sense of, of cooking and eating and how food can be used um, hopefully will be a residual effect when we all go back to work, that we all take a bit more responsibility and have a better understanding of our own consumption patterns uh, as well. So things to keep in mind. Thank you very much, Darcy, and thank you for bringing us, you know, both from the personal level, close <laughs> to home, but also up to the to the global level. That was very interesting. And um, before we begin the Q and A section, we'll have a few closing remarks from Director Rob Voss from IFRI and Director Craig Hansen from World Resource Institute. Rob, the floor is yours. Thank you, Trills, and uh, thanks to all the speakers. Um, this is uh, very difficult to follow the act of the previous speakers. I think they covered uh, a lot of the ground. So let me just summarize uh, a few highlights uh, and uh, some suggestions on the way forward. Uh, I think first what's come out from all the presentations uh, and also from our own observations uh, is this very strong paradox that we're seeing. On the one hand, COVID-19 has shown a very strong and resilient food systems. If you just look at the um, uh, staple foods markets, uh, they're still pretty well stocked, uh, been flowing for wheat and rice and so on. Uh, prices also have remained so far relatively stable and uh, most of the supermarkets uh, have been fairly well stocked in the most affected uh, countries in Europe and the US. And, um, and we've seen instances of, of hoarding by consumers that has left the shelves uh, empty and also by countries uh, through export restrictions as Darcy also mentioned uh, that uh, may create some uh, spikes in, in the market. But, but overall, um, we see resilient uh, food systems on the one hand and as some of the speakers uh, from the private sector emphasized also adjustment by the private sector. Uh, to um, uh, adjust to changing these changing conditions. But the paradox is that on the other hand, we see these enormous vulnerabilities to our food systems and several supply chains are buckling 
uh, we've seen the uh, heard about the examples of the direct impacts from in labor dense um, uh, food uh, production parts uh, like the meat packing in the uh, um, US, but also in areas uh, where uh, particularly more perishable products, uh, even in countries like uh, India, you may have seen the pictures of cows eating strawberries because the farmers couldn't take their strawberries to the markets, uh, or in West Africa, where a lot of um, fruits and vegetables are shipped uh, during the night um, because of the lack of uh, proper storage and cooled transportation. Um, and now with the curfews, uh, it has to be done during the day and it's creating enormous food losses. Um, Darcy talked about uh, labor restrictions and feeding, uh, uh, harvesting of, of crops. And uh, now in some places, crops are rotting in the fields unless that's being addressed. Um, the trade restrictions have been mentioned. And of course, the demand shifts that we've seen because of the closures of schools and restaurants. Uh, causing uh, millions of liters of milk to be uh, wasted. So um, what uh, this teaches us, uh, maybe um, three lessons um, I would like to emphasize uh, from um, this episode we're still living through, but particularly emphasizing that addressing food loss and waste is uh, probably more important than ever. Um, the first uh, is the importance of well integrated supply chains, both domestically and internationally, um, that requires addressing what I would call the your typical bread and butter issues of keeping um, uh, or having strong linkages along the supply chain. I gave the West Africa example, you don't have good um, dry chain or cooled um, transportation and storage, um, then a lot of losses will, will happen with or without um, uh, COVID-19. Um, the second lesson is uh, we probably need uh, to also have more flexible um, ways how to we manage uh, supply chains, and that's particularly with the shifts in demand. Uh, so we can adjust to shift in, uh, shifts in demand and uh, not get stuck because of particular forms of packaging, uh, particular uh, locked-in uh, markets, um, uh, that it's then difficult to shift and we get a lot of Food loss and waste uh, if there's a shift in the in the market, but it also emphasizes the importance of what I would call having green lanes for both trade in commodities and in flows of, of labor that can uh, move to the areas of production uh, at the points in time that's needed. The second lesson I think would be, uh, which maybe if less emphasized um, during our discussion is particularly uh, to improve the traceability of the quality and the safety of food. And this um, uh, COVID-19 crisis uh, of transmission uh, to original zoonotic uh, disease um, uh, emphasizes that, uh, that issue even more than before. And lastly, um, I'd also say that uh, since, um, and that's uh, in a, at the core also of reasons to emphasize food loss and waste reduction is that um, uh, it contributes to more sustainable use of land and water resources and climate change mitigation. But having said that, um, what this crisis also makes uh, clear is that more sustainable resource use in turn will help strengthen the resilience of our food system. So 
uh, that's where hopefully uh, from this crisis uh, a lot more effort and, and uh, action will take place in order to get to more uh, resilient as well as sustainable uh, uh, food systems. Let me stop here, but I think I thank the speakers. I think there was a very good uh, uh, introduction to the theme and uh, uh, ways forward. And um, I give it over to Brad. Thank you, Rob. Craig, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Charles, and thank you, everyone, for uh, this important seminar today. This issue of food loss and waste, as many have mentioned, is is more important now than ever, given this crisis. And I'd like to conclude uh, with kind of three observations uh, that I've heard today. First is on the production side, right? A healthy farmer is a productive farmer. And let's not forget, this is a health crisis. And therefore, we need farmers to stay healthy, to produce the food we need and reduce food losses, as well as we need everyone from the processor all the way to the people that are actually giving us the food at the retail store to stay healthy. So we need to make sure we still maintain the focus on health as a means of actually ensuring reductions in loss. Secondly, we have to look at the supply chains, right? Supply chains need to quickly adapt to quickly achieve food security. We've heard some examples today of some innovations from private sector as well as governments doing the right thing to quickly adapt supply chains to get food from where it's being provided to where it actually is urgently in need. And finally, on the consumption side, we need to buy what you need and eat what you buy, right? That's the basics in terms of what we need to do as consumers to help reduce food losses. And we are amidst a crisis. And I think in history shows that every crisis is a chance for us to focus on what's important as well as find what's new. And I think that is a challenge for all of us here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Craig. And uh, over to you, Rachel, and the Q&A session. Thank you very much, Charles. Thank you to you for the wonderful chairmanship and to all our speakers for their very interesting, inspiring, provocative remarks. Let's move over to the Q&A session. And we have about 15 minutes or so. We have received a number of questions and I'll come to them in a moment. But again, if you'd like to submit questions, please feel free to do so in the chat box, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter through hashtag IfPreLive. We want to hear from as many of you as possible. Be brief. I will direct questions one at a time to the speakers. And I ask our forgiveness of the speakers and the audience that I may consolidate some questions um, in uh, the interest of time. I'm also happy to let you know that we also have with us Jean Busby. Uh, who is the USDA Food Loss and Waste Liaison with the Office of the Chief Economist at USDA. And she will also be available to address any questions directed towards USDA. So welcome to Eugene. So let me take the first question. And I'd like to direct that towards Darcy. Darcy, this question comes in from Glenn Tarman, who is chair of the Feedback Organization in the UK. And he says, uh, Pre-COVID-19 normal meant food systems that were already broken. What should the priorities be to build back better for a just recovery? And what should we not go back to? And he emphasizes the second part. What should we not, not go back to? Darcy, over to you. Thank you for that, for that question. I think we've seen a lot of discussions lately about trying to build resilience back into food systems. That's a word you hear over and over that the, um, 
the loss of the food service supply chain so quickly showed sort of the brittleness or the fragility and the ability to adjust. And I think it's worth thinking about um, modularity, I guess, being able to adapt systems to steer toward different markets. And we heard Anna Karen, for example, talk about that and, and how to pivot. Um, but I think all the way back to farmer level, um, we need to think about managing risk. And so do you um, adopt a crop rotation or a mix of, of uh, folks where you sell your crops? Do you think about serving your local market, your regional market, and an international market and not putting all of your eggs in one basket, um, just like we would do with our stock portfolio? Do we need to think about doing that in segmenting our supply chains? Um, but I think we also need to, to not go back to um, the same conversations on labor and to be much more deliberate on how we value and protect the people who are on the, are on the front line of, of our food system. Um, when COVID-19 first hit and it was clear that our embassies and our consulates were closed um, and could not process the H-2A visas that we use for migrant workers, um, it was quickly and in a very bipartisan way that H-2A visa, those rules were adjusted to allow those workers to be able to move from one job to the next without returning home. Um, that was done with relatively little pain and we still have a, a worker shortage. So I think um, the bureaucratic requirements of allowing those workers to, um, to do their work, to recognize their skills and to live with more ease and dignity, um, maybe that will be the kind of revision that stays um, part of our policy and just, you know, that, that could advance um, further adjustments to that policy that would make um, more um, advances in our labor force. Uh, similarly, greater partnership between OSHA, CDC, USDA, um, and our, our meatpacking and other uh, processing facilities to think about overall health uh, of those workers and to think about um, how to balance the needs of keeping a steady food supply, but uh, protecting those worker populations as well. Darcy, thank you for that. Um, let me take the next question. And this is an anonymous question directed towards Eugene. And this question is businesses interested in donating food. What do they need to know? How can they do that? Over to Eugene. Okay, thank you very much for the question. I think there's three important things to know about uh, food donations. Three, there are three types of government provisions in the United States that encourage the donation of wholesome food to those in need. First of all, we have food donation laws to make such donations easier. We have, for example, the 2008 U.S. Federal Food Donation Act, which gives specific procurement contract language to encourage federal agencies and contractors to donate. And secondly, important, and very importantly, in the United States, we do have liability protection. Businesses that wish to donate food have protections under the Bill Emerson Good Samaritan Food Donation Act of 1996, which essentially removes liability for those who make good faith donations to nonprofits to feed the hungry. And third, we have tax benefits. The federal government provides enhanced tax deductions to businesses um, that encourage donations of wholesome food to qualified nonprofits. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jean. Um, and uh, let me move the next question to Anna Karin. 
Anna, this uh, Anna Karin, this question is from Lucina from FFAR FFR in the US. The question is, you mentioned reduction of complexity in dairy production to make the system more agile in case of future disruptions. Could you be more specific? Over to you, Anna Karin. Yes, um, what I was referring to uh, was that, that when you have a dairy, when you have a, a, a large complexity in the dairy, when the dairy is producing a lot of different types of products, you tend to see a higher food, a higher food waste from that dairy because just because of the production, you, you have some inefficiencies in that system. So when now we, the crisis has hit, we have... We have um, we have uh, focused on reducing complexity to really increase the efficiency of the dairies. Uh, and so it was more sort of, the, that was more my point that, that learnings from, the, from that simplification of production could be valuable then when we then scale up the complexity again, we could start questioning some of that complexity um, to, to see where we sort of strike a good balance because of course you can you can uh, you you need a certain complexity to fulfill the market demands and the market market expectations but but there is a, a fine line there where a lot of complexity also drives food waste unfortunately so learnings from simplification is hopefully something that we could uh, bring forward into the future thank you anna karin denise let me come to you and i have two brief questions for you the first question comes from Amanda Blount in the US and the UK uh, in the US. And this question is, are there any plans to have an ugly food section in grocery stores across America? And the second brief question is also for you from Francesca Aloco with the Ambientex law firm in Italy. That do you have an estimate of the quantities of food waste that have been produced since the beginning of the crisis? Two questions, Denise, for you. Thank you. Sure, thank you. I'll, I'll share what I can. Um, so first to the question of imperfect produce, we actually have been working on a plan to source product that we could um, uh, have in stores and actually labeled as imperfect produce. We have delayed uh, the introduction of that um, and especially given the current situation, but we do still very much think that uh, there is potential there. And I would say that part of what we've done in our response has been through our Zero Hunger, Zero Waste Foundation, we have given additional grants to the uh, innovators that we awarded grants to in our first round of our innovation fund. One of those is actually the company called Imperfect Foods uh, based in California. And what they are doing with the additional grant money is scaling up a program which was uh, delivering direct to homes uh, boxes of imperfect produce. And so they are scaling that up. And I think they're focusing on uh, direct shipment of imperfect produce to seniors right now in the U.S. who are struggling with food security. So uh, we've also enabled uh, additional projects or increasing the lines from some other entrepreneurs like um, Seal the Seasons and Ripe Revival who are focused on innovative ways to, to, to glean and take um, farm food that maybe isn't being harvested or can't go through retail and either flash freezing it or making other, you know, nutritional supplements um, from these items. So definitely 
um, supporting others who are doing that work right now so that they can just quickly scale and move and accelerate some of the work that they've already started. I think one of the things we've learned is speed. So we were working on a lot of these things, um, but maybe had a longer time horizon for which they could develop and really move. And we've just tried to accelerate the work similar to dairy where we were doing something in Michigan, but now we've rapidly scaled, I think faster than we would have ever thought possible if not for the crisis. So I think that is one potentially silver lining is that it has um, increased flexibility, moved and accelerated the progress on some of these really creative um, projects and, and, and shown the incredible need and also creativity of entrepreneurs in the system and, and letting them do what they do best. On the second topic, um, I don't have an estimate on food lost or waste or both so far since um, the pandemic started. I think we are still working with our partners to finalize our 2019 numbers. We don't know what 2020 um, is going to shape up and look like. We do track our um, scan loss uh, and what is scanned out, uh, potentially, hopefully for rescue as much as possible. So we track that, it's always lagging behind by several weeks um, sometimes. Sometimes we get, we get part of it uh, a, about a day later in terms of what we see happening in our stores, but it takes us a little while to work with both our food bank partners and our waste haulers to get the information we need to get a full picture. So I don't know today. We have been selling through a lot of items. Um, so, you know, we're not sure. We're hoping that we're generating a lower amount of food surplus in our stores that is not sold, but, but time will tell. Thank you for that, Denise. Darcy, I'd like to direct the next question to you. This question comes from Farbod Youssefi at the World Bank. And question is, have you noted any priority policies or regulations that can enable more efficient, shorter supply chains and thus lead to lower food loss? Any country examples you've come across? Thank you, Darcy. I don't know that I have um, specific policy examples that I could point to. Um, I would say in the United States, um, some questions about authorities um, at USDA and you know what could be quickly mobilized, I think we will learn from this um, pandemic experience. Um, take, for example, um, the unfortunate need to euthanize some hogs. Um, USDA noted that they have authority to euthanize animals and to provide funds to do so when there's an animal disease. But when the cause is a human disease, um, that was not something we, we foresaw. So figuring out how to mobilize resources to protect health to do um, what is a, a terrible action, but may need to be taken in the most um, sustainable manner that protects health and might provide some compensation for farmers. Um, I think we are looking at some of those interrelationships and we need to, to keep doing that. Um, I would say that I think the action that the G20 Ag Ministers took to talk about not putting in place food export restrictions, um, keeping markets open, um, to create more uh, discussion and transparency about food prices and availability, um, you know, really thinking about the interconnectivity of those markets, uh, that's going to remain critical. Um, I have been uh, somewhat dismayed that I think even just the past uh, 
week to 10 days, the number of increased calls to put in place border measures on the assumption that that would increase um, conditions for improve conditions for farmers who are facing surplus and by preventing exports, um, make it easier for consumers to find products on grocery store shelves. Um, it is very difficult to explain global supply chains, um, but those measures are in fact likely to make measures worse and, and not better in terms of getting food to people who need it affordably and efficiently. And so I think there's a, some thought leadership and some policy priority leadership and education needed um, that countries need to come together and focus on. Thank you, Darcy. Jean, let me direct the next question to you. And this question comes from Nepal. Do you see the, and this question is directed to USDA, do you see the potential for any of the measures that uh, Mr. Sensky uh, presented in response to COVID to become permanent, especially in regard to getting food to rural families? Any comments on that, Jean? Uh, thank you for the question. I cannot say about whether things will become per permanent or not, but I do want to direct uh, people to our usda.gov backslash coronavirus website with coronavirus one word there. It has a wealth of information on all the different programs that Deputy Secretary Sensky mentioned. Thank you very much, Jean. And let me direct the next question back to Denise. Denise, this question is coming in from uh, Ramesh Deshpande, uh, currently the CEO of India Agriculture Group. And he asks, what about the economics of saving food waste? It is difficult to reach even a break even in this business. What is the economics of saving food waste? Over to you, Denise. So, yes, so thank you. As a business, uh, there is a cost. So we, we pay for waste haulers to come pick up um, all waste from our stores. So if we can reduce the amount that they're picking up to drive to the landfill and instead divert that to our food rescue program um, where surplus food is still edible, we want to get it to people as much as possible. So it reduces our, both on the back end, uh, store by store, it reduces their operational costs in terms of of hauling fees, et cetera. Um, and we have food banks through our food rescue program who come pick up at our stores um, many times a week. I think what we've learned is every day is optimal for getting the most perishable, fresh, nutritious food to our food banks to direct to, to their customers and others in our communities. So there is definitely, you know, we, we don't buy, we don't procure food to drive it to the landfill. Our goal is to direct as much food as possible to people. So, so we are working with our supply chain partners to maximize the amount of food we sell for one thing. And as food reaches its expiration, we also mark it down. And so it becomes more affordable as it, as it nears its uh, end of shelf life. And so that program in our stores is very popular, particularly for meats and, and high value proteins. So we rescue and donate a lot of food um, and, and meat and animal proteins are about 50% of what we rescue because we can quickly freeze it and food banks can pick it up whenever it's convenient for them. So um, that is kind of how we look at it. We see it very much as a business and economic opportunity. 
Thank you, Denise. We have many questions. Let me direct the last question to Anna Karin. Anna Karin, you presented a number of key lessons, uh, uh, and um, you. Uh, uh, but going forward, looking forward, what do you see as the most pressing challenges, or uh, where do you see some of the key uh, things that worry you the most? Uh, looking forward, as we as we go through the COVID crisis, over to you, Anna Karin. Oh, that is a very challenging question. I would say that that it is about um, maintaining this this food systems approach that we spoke about throughout this this really interesting session, um, pointed out by so many speakers that it is about connecting the the consumer with the producer and shuffling back resources um, to, to to make this entire system work, and with the health crisis as also very um, eloquently put, uh, we need to keep people healthy to, to provide this service. And, and that is, is really what we need to focus on, um, but also to, to, to make those systems resilient to the changes that we know is going to come as well with climate change and, and other disruptions. Uh, so it is, it is really about taking the time to take the learnings from, from what we're experiencing right now and build, build stronger systems um, and collaboratively doing so. I think SDG 17 matches so very well with uh, SDG 12.3 in this respect because we're in this together and we really, really need to solve it together. So it is about that kind of how we can stick together across nations, across sectors um, to, to really make this complex system work, continuously work to provide the nutrition out there uh, that is produced. So it, it's, it's not a very sharp answer, but that, that would be my, my concern, how to, to really keep that collaborative approach uh, and not start wandering off in our different directions and, and optimizing only for yourself, but really see it as, as one interconnected, very complex system. Thank you, Anna Karin. There are a number of uh, people who have asked questions that we have not been able to get to, but let me acknowledge them and thank them. This is Olivia Haley, Eroika Bo, Mariam Rezai, Anne Burrell, Pabani Prasad Mahapratra, um, Langao, Mukayama Onveri, um, Victoria Uyanga, and many others. Thank you for, uh, for submitting your questions and I apologize that we are not able to come to all of them. So before I call on our chair, Charles, again, to make closing remarks, let me also warmly thank our other colleagues and partners who have been part of this organizing group. And this is Tina Rasmussen over at the Embassy of uh, Denmark here in Washington, Espen Larsen and Jillian Holzer with WRI and Katarla Taylor from IFPRI. And we are delighted to have this partnership and we look forward to an event, hopefully March 12 next year. But over to you, Charles, for the closing remarks. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you very much, Rajul. And that uh, concludes today's special event on food loss and waste and COVID-19. I think it has been a very interesting conversation and for my part, well, many learnings. The interconnectedness, local to global, sustainable food system approach, the need for cooperation and in reducing complexity. We have 10 years to reach the goal of reducing food loss and waste in half. Even as we are in a dire situation, I think there is hope. As we have heard today, governments, companies, and parts of the food supply chain are acting with speed and agility to adapt to the new situation. So in face of, in face of urgency, change is possible. And I think that is uh, my takeaway today. So once again, 
thank you very much to all our speakers for your great contributions. And thank you to all of you who listened in today. And we are very sorry we couldn't take any more of your questions. You have been a very active audience. Thank you very much. And I'm sure the conversation continues. Have a very nice rest of your day today. Thank you.